Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Woody Hayes was bigger than life. So when I started getting recruited and Woody came to my home in California, he asked me what schools I had visited and what schools I would be visiting. And remember, I'm in awe, okay? I live with my grandparents, and I told them the schools I would go visit, and, and, and any of those schools that I mentioned were not Pac-12 or Big Ten. They were other schools around the country. And he said to me, son, he already knew that I wanted to play in the Rolls Bowl. I told him that. I always had a dream I wanted to play in the Rolls Bowl. And he listened to me, and he said, son, Robert, you go – and you visit those schools. He said, but I can promise you one thing. And about that time, he started pulling off a ring off his hand, which was a this huge Rose Bowl ring with a big giant rose on the top of it with a diamond coming out of it. It was gorgeous. And he put it on the table, and he slid it across the table, and it stopped right in front of me. And as he was saying it, he said, you go visit those schools, but I can promise you this. And he slid the ring and he goes, you will never, ever get one of those rings at those institutions. And and he said, put it on. After it stopped right in front of me, I put it on and I looked at it. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'll never forget it as long as I live. He had me. <laughs> he had me closed. Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes, released each Tuesday, will carry listeners through that season, one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with episode one. This is episode two, Across the Field. The first week of the 1980 college football season featured few surprises. Arkansas fell to Texas in a battle of top 10 teams, and 11th-ranked Notre Dame easily dispatched of number 9 Purdue in a game that was likely decided a full five days before kickoff. The Boilermakers entered 1980 with rose-tinted dreams of a Big Ten title and perhaps a national championship. 
These hopes rested on the right arm of quarterback Mark Herman, who came into his senior year already the career-leading passer in Big Ten history for yards, completions, attempts, and touchdowns. On the Tuesday before the game against the Irish, Herman's typical surgeon-like performance in practice was interrupted by a disturbing thud. It was the sound of Herman's right thumb clanking against one of his teammates' helmets as he followed through on a picture-perfect spiral. X-rays taken the next day showed a severe amount of damage and swelling, but no fracture. Herman would meet with doctors three times a day for the rest of the week, until 48 minutes before kickoff in South Bend, he took the field to test his ability to throw the football. He cautiously attempted 20 wobbly passes and took three snaps from under center. With team doctors looking on, he admitted to his coach that he couldn't squeeze the football and that any pass he threw further than 15 yards, he'd just be putting up for grabs. Herman was ruled out of the game, and just like that, Purdue's preseason dreams turned to nightmares. The Irish won the game 31-10 and climbed to number 7 in the AP poll. Purdue plummeted to the bottom of the rankings and readjusted its sights on a Big Ten championship. The second week of 1980 figured to be even more bland than the first, without a single matchup of ranked teams on the schedule. However, it would provide fans with their first look at Ohio State and Pitt, two teams heavily favored to win the national championship. Both teams were ranked in the top three and opening their seasons at home against overmatched opponents. But like a classic jump scare at the end of a slasher film, the one time in college football that's least safe to relax is when it seems there's nothing to worry about. Few personalities in college football history are more inextricably linked with their school as Woody Hayes and the Ohio State Buckeyes. Hayes hasn't coached a game in more than 40 years, yet fans can still picture his trademark horn-rimmed glasses, Block O baseball cap, and short sleeve shirt and necktie. In 1980, the Buckeyes were still getting used to life without Woody. It had been just a year and a half since his celebrated tenure at the school came to a shocking and disgraceful conclusion. Hayes was born on Valentine's Day, 1913, just 75 miles away from Columbus. His upbringing in rural Ohio installed in him a deep sense of pride and hard work, sacrifice, and loyalty. His great-grandfather had fought and died at the Battle of Antietam, and Woody left his high school coaching job to enlist in the U.S. Navy when America entered World War II. He was a student of military history and saw football as an extension of the battlefield. Upon returning from war, Hayes resumed his coaching career at his alma mater, Denison University. Later, he would take over as head coach at Miami University in Ohio, a school so revered for its football leaders, it's still known as the cradle of coaches. During its history, legendary coaches like Sid Gilman, Paul Brown, Era Parsegan, Bo Schembechler, and Wee Bubanks prowled the sidelines. But after just two seasons at the helm of the Indians football team, Hayes became the unlikely choice to take over the Ohio State Buckeyes. It was a move that took him from the cradle to the grave. For as well regarded as Miami was for its coach's acumen, Ohio State had gained a reputation for the ignominious ends of its program leaders. Before Hayes' hiring, the Buckeyes had run through six coaches in the previous 12 seasons. Three of those men had left, at least in part, due to the intense pressure that came with coaching in Columbus. As Hayes stepped foot on campus, Ohio State had captured just one national championship when Paul Brown was the head coach before he left to coach Cleveland's entry in a new experimental professional league. Ohio State demanded a winner, and in Hayes' debut season of 1951, there were questions if Hayes was the right man for the job. When a preliminary list of names was created for the position opening, Hayes was listed 29th out of 38 candidates, and of the eight men to be interviewed, he was last. 
but he sold the school administrators on his promise of a well-disciplined team that would impose its will through power football. Hayes coached the Buckeyes for 28 seasons and could easily be the subject of an entire podcast. He was legendary not just for his winning ways, but for his explosive temper. He would punch himself so hard in the face during games, he would break his own glasses. His office had a drawer full of watches to replace the ones he shattered during practices, and he would sometimes loosen the stitches on his hat to make it easier to tear it apart during his fits of rage. Bob Murphy remembers one such outburst. He busted through the doors, and I mean busted through the doors. And he went into a the most passionate, unbelievable uh, antics. It was just something you would have to see to believe. He was punching the board. He was punching his face. He broke his glasses. He walked out of the room, and we just looked at each other like, that might be the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen in my life. During his long tenure, he captured two AP National Championships, 13 Big Ten titles, and authored at least three of the most famous college football axioms. He's credited with coining the Big Ten's plotting football style as three yards in a cloud of dust. When asked about his stubborn loyalty to running the football, he answered, three things can happen when you pass the ball, and two of them are bad. And when questioned about why he went for two when his Buckeyes were already ahead by 36 points against the hated team from up north, Hayes replied, because they wouldn't let me go for three. One reporter remembers that after losses or ties, Hayes would conduct his post-game press conferences in the nude, his way to ensure reporters didn't stick around too long and ask too many questions. But by 1978, some felt Hayes had lost his fastball. Before the 1974 season, he was hospitalized after suffering a heart attack. He had diabetes, and his blood sugar would be erratic, especially during the evenings. On the field, his teams didn't feature the same overwhelming talent as they once had, and beginning in 1976, he lost three times in a row to Michigan for the first time in his career. At the end of the disappointing 1978 season that saw Ohio State finish fourth in the Big Ten, his team accepted a bid to play Clemson in the Gator Bowl. It would be the last game Hayes ever coached. Late in the fourth quarter and trailing by two points, freshman quarterback Art Schleister had completed several passes to move Ohio State into field goal range. On third and five, Hayes, who had built his career on running the football, called a pass play. The throw was intercepted by a Clemson middle guard from New Jersey named Charlie Bauman. As Bauman was tackled along the Ohio State sideline, an enraged Hayes grabbed his jersey and swung a fist at the player, striking him under the chin with his right forearm. Hayes was left-handed, and the punch did little more than surprise Bauman, who looked down at Hayes in confusion and asked, what did you do that for? Another Clemson player running behind Bauman on the play reports hearing Hayes scream in the moments before the punch, you son of a bitch, I just lost my job. Pushing and shoving followed the punch, unseen by announcers, but broadcast live on television and on instant replay for all to see. Schleister looks at Donnelly, throws it short, it's intercepted! Charlie Bauman, the middle guard, intercepted it! And we got a big fight going on. After the game, Hayes gathered his team and told them that Bauman had it coming since his ancestor had killed his great-grandfather in the Civil War. By 8 a.m. the next morning, Hayes was fired. Ohio State moved quickly to name a successor and announced that former Hayes assistant and current Iowa State head coach Earl Bruce would take over. When they announced Earl Bruce, I didn't know who Earl Bruce was. I'd never heard of Earl Bruce in my life. And there were quite a few other players that hadn't heard of him either. 
Earl was very, he brought in a young staff, very cutting edge. He brought in a passing attack. He just brought an energy with his staff. Bruce had coached for Hayes in Columbus before moving on to head coaching jobs at the University of Tampa and Iowa State. Forever loyal to Hayes, the new coach found himself in the difficult position of taking over for a legend while dragging Ohio State football into the modern era. Expectations were low for Bruce and the Buckeyes, who started the 1979 season unranked for just the third time in the 30-year history of the preseason poll. But there was excitement among the team's offensive players. They felt that Bruce would bring with him a more wide-open attack that treated the forward pass as a weapon instead of a threat to Western society as Hayes had. Radio announcer Chuck Underwood remembers Bruce used his first game as head coach to make a bold statement to the Ohio State fans. They won their first game uh, against Syracuse that year, and on the second play from scrimmage, Ohio State, deep in its own territory, had thrown a very long pass, and the pass was incomplete, and the full house crowd of the typical 86,000 is what it seated back then, gave the coach, Earl Bruce, a standing ovation. And I talked with Earl then the, the next Monday, and he very humbly and very quietly told me, I just wanted to let him know it was a new day, that 28 years of Woody Hayes football and running the football and seldom passing it, but that was now over. Shockingly, Bruce led Ohio State to a perfect record and number one ranking at the end of the 1979 regular season. Leading by six against USC with just three minutes to go in the Rose Bowl, Ohio State saw its lead and its grip on the national championship slip away. Heisman Trophy winning running back Charles White led the Trojans on an 83-yard game-winning drive, and the Buckeyes lost 17-16. to in 1980, the Buckeyes were back with unfinished business. Quarterback Arch Sleester, who had thrown the ill-fated interception against Clemson in 1978, was back for his junior year after coming in fourth in the Heisman voting in 1979, the highest finish ever for a sophomore. So popular and well-known was Sleester in Big Ten country that a letter mailed from Chicago and addressed only to Art, the best athlete in Ohio, took only two days before it reached the mailbox of the Buckeyes quarterback. His favorite and most dangerous target was senior receiver Doug Donnelly, a player that ran so fast his teammates called him White Lightning. Donnelly had played the 1979 Rose Bowl despite suffering a compound fracture of his little finger during warm-ups before the game. The trainers popped the bone back inside the skin and taped it up. Donnelly finished with four catches for 110 yards and an epic catch-and-run that had USC defender Ronnie Lott, a player who knows something about pinky finger injuries, completely turned around. In the 1980 preseason poll, Ohio State was the top-ranked team in the land. It opened the season in the horseshoe against Syracuse, a program that had made headlines during the offseason with the building of its massive new on-campus stadium, the Carrier Dome. The 54,000-seat stadium, tucked under six acres of fiberglass, wasn't scheduled to open until week three of the season, and that home game couldn't come soon enough. The new dome was built on the same site as the old stadium, leaving the Orangemen homeless and playing their entire 1979 schedule on the road. Now, Syracuse was on the road again, and its head coach Frank Maloney, who saw his team get whipped by the Bucks in 1979, was looking for any advantage he could find to help level the playing field. 
key to any success that the Orangemen might have was a Mighty Mouse junior running back named Joe Morris, who by year's end would own every major Syracuse rushing record. Quite an accomplishment at a school that featured Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, and Larry Zonga. As for the Buckeyes, Coach Bruce was tired of all the offseason questions and predictions, and anxious to see his team perform. The week before the opening game, when asked by a reporter how his team was, Bruce responded by saying, That's like a guy asking you how's your wife. Well, compared to what? The night before the game, the head coach and his team sat together for a special screening of the movie Deliverance. It's a film about a group of friends that set out for a fun weekend together on a canoe trip down a river in Georgia, but find trouble when they're ambushed by some locals. It should have been a warning to Ohio State. In front of a spillover crowd at the Horseshoe, Syracuse took the game's opening kickoff and drove 80 yards for a quick 7-0 lead. On Ohio State's first offensive play of the season, Schleister was intercepted, and the quarterback doubled down on his mistake by tackling the defender by his face mask for a 15-yard penalty. Three plays later, Syracuse hit pay dirt again, and the number one team in America was losing 14 to nothing before most fans had a chance to settle into their seats. The Buckeyes answered with a 35-yard field goal, but after the ensuing kickoff, the visitors carved 80 yards through the Ohio State defense in four and a half minutes for a 21-3 advantage. After the game, Coach Maloney said his team's plan was to confuse Ohio State with different formations and a lot of pre-snap motion, and through one and a half quarters, it was working. Bruce had had a near-perfect debut season in 1979, but the sequel was starting out like a disaster. If he couldn't get things turned around, he might find out why Columbus was called the Graveyard of Coaches. In 1980, the University of Pittsburgh was in the middle of a remarkable three-year stretch of football. A power in the early part of the 20th century, the Panther program had fallen on hard times. But during a decade when Pittsburgh became the center of the sports universe, college football was enjoying a rebirth in the Steel City. In 1972, the Panthers had won just one game, but everything changed the following year with the arrival of head coach Johnny Majors and freshman running back Tony Dorsett. Dorsett led Pitt to its first winning season in 10 years and became the first player in three decades to be named an All-American as a freshman. He would finish his career as the all-time leading rusher in college football history and the only player ever to run for more than 1,000 yards in four consecutive seasons. In 1976, as a senior, he won the Heisman Trophy and a national championship for the Panthers. In December of that year, as his team was preparing for a Sugar Bowl game against Georgia, Majors announced that he would be leaving Pittsburgh to coach Tennessee. It was, he said, the lure of his homeland. Majors had grown up in the Volunteer State and played for Big Orange in the 1950s. The day after beating the Bulldogs and being named national champion, Majors left for Knoxville. Pittsburgh didn't waste much time naming his successor. It handed the keys to the program to a former Majors assistant, that was now the head coach at Washington State, Jackie Sherrill. Sherrill learned the college game at Alabama under head coach Bear Bryant, and writer Bob Smizek remembers how he brought the Bears' trademark toughness with him to Cardiac Hill and the Panthers. He was just like Bear Bryant. The players liked him, they respected him, and they feared him a little bit too. And that's how the impression I always had that, that Bear was like. I think Jackie probably modeled, modeled himself after Bear. So he was just the ideal guy to run that team. Along with an attitude, Cheryl also brought to Pitt a bevy of talented recruits. Some were found around the corner from campus, and others came from across the country, even sometimes by accident. Like Hugh Green, who had signed an SEC letter of intent for Mississippi State, 
but was convinced by Coach Sherrill to play at Pittsburgh, where he became one of the greatest defenders to ever play the game. It was on um, scouting Rooster Jones, and uh, they came across Hugh Green, whether he was on Rooster's team, the other team, and they realized what a great player they was, and they were able to get him to come to Pittsburgh. Once on campus, Green and his teammates set out to convince a local high school quarterback named Danny Marino to join them. Green recalls the short walk from the practice field to Marino's mother's house to eat spaghetti or to the Diamond to watch his high school baseball games. Just a few months after he committed to play for Pitt, Marino was drafted by the Kansas City Royals. The NCAA wouldn't allow him to play baseball and retain his eligibility, so he turned down Kansas City's signing bonus to play quarterback for the Panthers. Dan was right next to campus. I could walk and go see him play um, baseball and a bunch of things. So, you know, once I saw him play, it was just, oh, 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 got to have him. He was cocky, uh, he was very competitive, and he, 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 didn't, he didn't back down from anything. With Green on defense and Marino taking over under center, the Panthers finished 1979 11-1, with an early season loss to the Tar Heels in Chapel Hill as its only blemish. Now, in Cheryl's fourth season in charge, the Panthers were loaded with maybe the best roster in college football history and were picked by many to win the national championship. The team featured seven first-round draft picks in all. The entire offensive and defensive line went on to start in the NFL, as did three defensive backs, two wide receivers, the kicker, the quarterback, and the fullback. Five backups on the team also went on to become NFL starters. In fact, all 22 starters from that 1980 team were drafted. Five are currently enshrined in the College Football Hall of Fame, and three are immortalized in Canton. The first stringers were so good and so intense that it was all Cheryl could do to keep them from injuring each other during practice. This team, in 1980 team, was probably the most physical team I had a chance in. Always during two days at the end, the first time in pads, at the end of practice, would put the ball on the four-yard line and, or six-yard line and say you had three plays to either score or three plays for the defense to stop there, and we would go one against one. Uh, after three plays, I blew the whistle, and I stopped it, and we never went out in full gear for the whole year because, you know, the team had that much talent, and if we would go out in pads, we'd beat the dog out of each other, so we wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't be ready to play on Saturday. In the 1980 Sports Illustrated season preview magazine, Pitt was ranked number one, and two-time All-American defensive end Green was on the cover. Well, we had great leadership on both sides, but Hugh was a leader, and but he he made everything fun. He went to practice and laughed, and we always started practice with what we call bull in the ring, you know, two players, offense, defensive player. And, you know, we, of course, we didn't do it that year because of we wasn't in full gear. So at the end of the year, we still wasn't in full gear. But Hugh says, how come you haven't done this? And uh, I said, okay. And I said, who do you want? And he says, I want big boy. Well, Mark May was our, our big guy, and uh, so we did it, and, you know, it was like a dish rag, and because Hugh was mentally prepared to do it, 
you know, and Mae jumps up and wants to go again, and I wouldn't let him go again because somebody would have gotten hurt if I'd let him go again. As the 1980s season opener against Boston College neared, Cheryl's senior-laden team didn't require much motivation. But just because it wasn't needed, it didn't mean Cheryl was incapable of motivating his team in some very unique ways. Take, for example, what happened in 1992, in Hugh Green's home state of Mississippi, no less. Cheryl was in his second year as head coach of the Mississippi State Bulldogs. He had left Pittsburgh after the 1981 season. Cheryl's team was preparing to play its opener against the Texas Longhorns when the coach asked his team a simple question. At Mississippi State, I ask our players if anybody knows what a steer is, and no one raised their hand. So we're walking out to the practice field, and one of the managers came up and said, Coach, we're in the cattle business. We castrate about 30 bulls a day. He said, you want my dad to bring one? So I said, sure. So sure enough, his dad brings the bull and has the vet with him, and the vet gives him a shot of penicillin. Now, the mistake I made was doing it on the field instead of doing it at South Farms. South Farms is is the vet school where vet students do it every day. You know, some of the players watched, some of the players didn't watch. But to make a long story short, there was a girl running, a track girl running across the, the field and it kind of raining and her mom worked at the vet school and she told her, her mom that all of a sudden it just mushroomed and got bigger and bigger and bigger and it ended up being a lot bigger than what it was but it was like you know I had a knife between my teeth and threw the, the bull on the ground and I did it myself so when people ask me today I reach in my pocket and pull out a, a little knife and said, you know, if it only takes three seconds, I'll show you. You want me to show you? The 1980 Panthers seemed likely to roll in their first game against Boston College. A three-touchdown road underdog, the Eagles were seen as little more than a speed bump before Pitt's challenging road games at Florida State, Tennessee, and Penn State later in the year. But Boston College had made it a habit of opening its season with tough competition, and even upset a top-10 Texas team on the road to start 1977. In the weekly press conference before the game, a power outage resulted in the briefing of gathered media members to be carried out by candlelight. The spooky setting was fitting for Cheryl's warning that the Eagles were not to be taken lightly. Upon winning the coin toss, Pitt decided to put his defense on the field first. The move was a smart one, as the Panthers forced an early Eagles fumble, but the advantage was given right back when Marino fumbled near the BC goal line. It was a sloppy start that would become characteristic of the rest of the game. Through 27 minutes, the score was still tied at zero before Pitt finally broke through with a touchdown and a two-point conversion to head into halftime leading 8-0. The Eagles answered in the third quarter with a touchdown of their own, but the two-point try failed when a pass sailed over the head of an open receiver. That score came during an unbelievable sequence that was downright comical. Here's how the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette described the series of unfortunate events. First, Lynn Thomas intercepted for Pitt. Then, McMillan fumbled for Pitt, which turned into a BC score. On the first play after kickoff, Marino recovered his own fumble. Two plays later, McMillan fumbled and BC recovered. Two plays after that, White intercepted a Lowry pass. And two plays after that, Craig Beal intercepted a Marino pass. 
In all, the Panthers committed nine turnovers on five Marino interceptions and four fumbles. Pitt managed to hold on to the football long enough to score another touchdown and would win the game 14-6. It was not the statement win that Pitt fans were expecting, and the Panthers' senior tackle Mark May said after the game that his team played like pretenders, not contenders. Still, the Pitt defense was dominant. It allowed just 220 yards and forced seven turnovers of its own. It was the kind of performance that made the other teams on the schedule take notice. And it was that kind of respect that the University of North Carolina was looking for. The North Carolina Tar Heels entered the 1980 season as the favorites to win the Atlantic Coast Conference. That alone, however, was not enough for UNC to be taken seriously. There was a saying about ACC football in those days. It was just something the conference did between basketball seasons. In 1979, NC State won the ACC and wasn't even invited to a bowl game. Back in 1953, Carolina and six other schools broke away from the Southern Conference to form the ACC. That same year, the Maryland Terrapins won the national championship in the conference's very first year of existence. But as the 1980s began, the ACC was still looking for its second champion. The Tar Heels had built a great foundation in the 1970s under head coach Bill Dooley, brother of Georgia head coach Vince. Under Dooley, UNC had its first ever 11-win season and captured three league championships. But in 1977, Dooley left Chapel Hill to take over the Virginia Tech Hokies, and UNC replaced him with Dick Crum. Crum had most recently been the head coach at the University of Miami, the same cradle of coaches where Woody Hayes had apprenticed before taking over at Ohio State. Crum's first season in Carolina ended with a disappointing 5-6 record, but his 1979 team finished 8-3-1, including a surprising win over the Michigan Wolverines in the Gator Bowl. The season could have been even better, but running back Lawrence Amos was hobbled by an injury in the middle of the season, and the team struggled before he returned to full health. In 1980, UNC brought back seven starters from an offense that led the league in scoring. Most importantly, Amos was back for his senior season, and to make a bid to join Tony Dorsett as the only players to ever rush for four 1,000-yard seasons in a career. He was joined in the backfield by Kelvin Bryant, giving Carolina a devastating one-two punch. And without question, North Carolina has never had a one-two running back punch like Amos Lawrence and Kelvin Bryant. Amos Lawrence was smaller, very, very shifty. I mean, he could show a tackler a leg. And then as the tackler is going for the leg, take it away, and he could get an extra five yards, or he might even break it all the way. Um, charismatic. Fans loved him. Uh, Kelvin Bryant was quiet, but um, a perfect point-counterpoint for Amos Lawrence. You know, tall slasher as opposed to the smaller, shifty Lawrence. And the two of them uh, <laughs> were extremely formidable. In fact, um, you know, the Atlantic Coast Conference chooses two all-conference backs they chose North Carolina's number one and number two running backs that season as all-conference. That's how good they were. The biggest questions during the offseason were about who would win the battle to replace quarterback Matt Kupik, a four-year starter who held just about every school record at the position. During the team's first preseason scrimmage, that decision was made when junior Chuck Sharp was lost to a knee injury, handing the job to sophomore Rod Elkins. There were no such doubts on the other side of the ball. Carolina brought back eight starters on defense, including safety and team punter Steve Streeter, defensive tackle Donnell Thompson, and number 98, Lawrence Taylor. Taylor had 95 tackles, five sacks, and seven forced fumbles as a junior, 
and introduced himself to America with a stellar performance against Michigan in the Gator Bowl. Wangler, great play. Oh, my goodness, that's a fine play by Lawrence Taylor, and it's the second big play in the game Lawrence has made. Taylor had come to Carolina from Williamsburg, Virginia. His first two seasons in Chapel Hill had mixed results. He was a backup as a freshman and spent time at nose tackle as a sophomore. When he was moved back to his natural position of outside linebacker in 1979, he was unstoppable. His teammates called him Filthy McNasty, and one writer compared his style of play to Godzilla at feeding time. Teammate and defensive back Steve Streeter remembered how one time in a bowl game, he was giving chase to a wide receiver that had gotten behind him and was streaking towards the end zone. Suddenly, like a flash, Taylor flew past him, saying, you got to do better than that, before catching up to the player and saving a touchdown. There was nothing on a football field that Taylor couldn't do. The Tar Heels opened 1980 by running over the Furman Paladins 35-13. Week 2 would see them travel to Lubbock, Texas, for a matchup with the Red Raiders. The game was originally scheduled to be played at 7.30 at night, but was moved up to 12.50 so it could be seen on regional television. Tech had won just three games in 1979, but came into the UNC matchup after beating UTEP 35-7 in Week 1 of the 1980 season, and featured the number one quarterback in passing efficiency after just four quarters of play. Despite being ranked in the top 15, the Tar Heels were still considered a slight underdog in the game. Coaches gave players copies of a local newspaper article that predicted the Raiders would win by a couple touchdowns, and claimed Carolina wasn't ready to compete with a member of the Southwest Conference, in a further insult, the paper hadn't even managed to spell Coach Crum's name correctly. UNC felt it had something to prove. The Red Raiders took the game's opening kickoff and drove down the field for a quick 3-0 lead. They were the only points either team would score in the first half. Midway through the third quarter, Carolina drove to the 3-yard line, aided by two 15-yard personal foul penalties against Texas Tech, and tied the score at 3. The fourth quarter would see Tech threaten multiple times, but the Tar Heel defense, though bending, refused to break. In fact, the Carolina defense would allow only one touchdown in its first seven games of the season. The Raiders' next possession ended at the UNC 21, when a go-ahead field goal attempt sailed wide. Then, as the fourth quarter began with Tech once again in scoring position, senior Steve Streeter spoiled the chance with an end zone interception. The turnover gave Carolina momentum, and two plays later, it took the lead on a 58-yard pass to Kelvin Bryant. Elkins escaped contain, looked for an, a safety outlet, and he found Kelvin Bryant. Um, I'm thinking the ball maybe traveled 12 yards through the air. It was a 56-yard touchdown pass, mostly on the running of Kelvin Bryant. Kelvin Bryant was arguably you know, maybe the best talent in North Carolina football history in the backfield. The extra point was missed after a bad snap, keeping the score at 9-3 to and leaving the door open for Texas Tech. Minutes later, after an interception, the home team nearly kicked that door in, but Lawrence Taylor forced a fumble at the two-yard line and recovered to turn the Raiders away. With two minutes left in the game, Tech again found itself deep in Carolina territory, but yet another interception sealed its fate. In all, Tech would have five possessions inside the UNC 25-yard line and come away with just three points. After the game, the Tar Heel players were heard chanting ACC as they ran up the tunnel to their locker room. On the Raiders' sideline that day was assistant coach Al Groh. Groh had been Taylor's linebacker coach at UNC and would later coach him in the NFL for the New York Giants. He had warned his team all week that Taylor could wreck a game all by himself. 
After watching his former charge ruin one tech drive after another, he looked like he'd seen a ghost. Al Groh was an assistant coach on that Texas Tech team. I'd known Al. He was an assistant at Carolina in the Bill Dewey years. And so I ran into him in the locker room. Al, what'd you think of the game? I swear, Joe, Al had kind of a, a glazed over look on his eyes. And he said, Lawrence Taylor, Lawrence Taylor, best performance I've ever seen. Unbelievable player. And, and I think that says more about Lawrence Taylor than, than anything else I could tell you. UNC would enjoy a week off before returning to action at home against number 19, Maryland. Back in Columbus, top-ranked Ohio State had managed to add two field goals before halftime to cut the Syracuse lead to 21-9. Despite the score, Buckeyes Bob Murphy and Doug Donnelly remember little panic in the home team's locker room. You knew that we got these guys. I know they're coming out with some, you know, with some flashy stuff and some creative formations. But if we can just execute and do our job and stop making some of these silly mistakes, we can literally just shut them down. When you're in a fight, you know how you're going to do. I mean, you can just tell. You say, you know what, I'm in trouble here. Or you know that, hey, you know what, I, I got this. And that's, that was the attitude of the defense. During the first two quarters, the Buckeyes had responded to Syracuse's pre-snap motion by shifting its own alignment. During halftime, Ohio State's coaches emphasized a switch to its whole defense. That meant that the call that came in from the sideline would remain unchanged, no matter what the Orangemen did to try and create confusion. Offensively, lineman Ron Barwig said after the game that the Buckeyes simplified their playbook from 20 different calls in the first half to running the same four plays after the break. Ohio State opened the second half with the football and needed just six plays to find the end zone. Leister back to pass as Rutsch throws the bomb up the middle. Donnelly's got it. Touchdown, Ohio State. Doug Donnelly streaking down the middle, caught the ball, and raced into the end zone. It was Donnelly's 10th career touchdown catch, giving him the most in school history. The score was now 21-16, and it appeared that Syracuse's early success had done little more than poke the bear. After an Orangeman punt, Ohio State's offense struck again and converted a two-point conversion to surge in front 24-21. Syracuse's offense, sharp and effective in the first half, had dulled after the break in the 92-degree weather. Morris managed to gain 155 yards on 26 carries, but only 53 of them came after halftime, and he had to be helped off the field three different times. The Orangemen could gain only three first downs in the second half to match the three Ohio State touchdowns. The Buckeyes ended the game with 28 unanswered points to make the final score 31-21. After the game, Donnelly, who helped spark the comeback with his record-breaking touchdown catch in the third quarter, seemed a likely choice to receive the game ball. But Coach Bruce made a surprising decision and awarded the honor to the team's kicker. More than anything else, the move may have signified that Ohio State still wasn't ready to declare its love for the forward pass. Like Pittsburgh, Ohio State had won its opener without playing its best game, but the slow start would cost the Buckeyes their top ranking. Nobody could have predicted at that time that it would be another 18 years before any Ohio State team would be ranked number one again. Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. George Rogers and the South Carolina Gamecocks travel across the continent to prove themselves against one of college football's Goliaths, the USC Trojans. He throws it in the middle, and it's intercepted by Scott Warner behind the end zone. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. There goes Scott Warner. Georgia brings back its silver britches to welcome Clemson for a thriller between the hedges 
while Bo Schembechler marches his Michigan Wolverines to South Bend to battle the Fighting Irish in a game that will be won on the final snap. Plus, Mark Herman returns for Purdue against a surprising UCLA Bruins team. The Hidden Yardage podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.